I'm Julian Thompson and I'm going to talk about the man A.N. Wilson calls the least read great writer in our literature. When Sir Walter Scott stage-managed the first visit of a Hanoverian monarch to Edinburgh since Bonnie Prince Charlie briefly held court there in 1745, he reached the summit of his power and influence. It was August 1822. His narrative poems had caught the imagination not only of Jane Austen, but of Austen characters as diverse as timid Fanny Price, judicious Anne Elliot, susceptible Captain Benwick, and ludicrous Sir Edward Denham in Sanditon. The Waverley novels, which followed sometimes at the rate of three a year, were raced southwards to the London market. Dispatch Rider versus Packet Boat. They struck readers like a recently discovered electric shock. Their author, ostensibly unknown, was dubbed the Northern Wizard, the Great Enchanter. His poetic dialogue and open moral sympathies were held to rival those of Shakespeare. Byron read the novels for at least an hour every day and longed to get drunk with their author. Yet, within a few years of Sir Walter's death, the Scott craze was over. Eclipsed by the less book-haunted and historically-minded Dickens. As the 19th century unfolded, the novels, now in cheap reprints, tended to stay on the shelves or to be decommissioned as presents for nephews or school prizes. Second-hand bookshops dealt in uncut copies which remained uncut. Scott was a drug on the market. The great unknown had become the great unread. Scott's never quite disappeared off the radar. There is a tourist industry with commemorative tombstones in windswept border churchyards, plaques tacked to beetle-browed cottages, and an unexpected treasure trove at Abbotsford, an ornate cottage near Melrose, still packed with the artefacts Sir Walter picked up as he roved the lowlands like a kind of cultural vacuum cleaner. Scott's home gives the visitor a hint of the great variety of his interests, his welcoming nature, his refusal to judge the past. But if Scott's generosity lives on in his own country, elsewhere he's become a byword for cultural misappropriation and even imperialism. Showing George IV round Edinburgh was, of course, a tacit admission on Scott's part that the old heroic divisions of Scotland into two nations, lowlands and highlands, were at an end. Henceforth, the increasingly industrialised lowlands, with their interests in sugar, tobacco and newly constructed factories, could throw in their lot with the southern counties of the Union and Scotland as North Britain could have a share in empire, too. Since the discovery of North Sea oil, that's remained just about the majority feeling north of the border, but Scott's inclusive vision has been called brutally to account by those who do not share it and often worryingly misappropriated by them. For example, Scott's symbol of reconciliation between Highland and Lowland culture, the wearing of the kilt, 
by Edinburgh lawyers and German kings, has now spread across the world as an icon of often triumphalist pan-Scottish identity. And the purposes of Scott's fiction, like the royal tour he superintended, have more often been twisted than honoured. Burning Celtic crossheads, as described in The Lady of the Lake, has become a symbol not of clan gathering, but of racial oppression in the southern United States. Mark Twain and William Faulkner even argued that Scott's Jacobites caused the American Civil War, providing the Confederates with a pattern of how to die well in a hopeless cause. It must be conceded that Scott's fiction is often ignored or misconstrued because so much of it is chock full of faults and falsity. The later novels Scott wrote against the clock have done him particular disservice. Many of the readers who do not read Scott do not read him because they did once read Ivanhoe, 1820, or watch the film or miniseries, finding in it a vision of the Middle Ages complete with waving pennons, Robin Hood, plenty of weapon-induced deaths, but no descriptions of untreated gangrene. The casual reader of Ivanhoe might conclude that all Scott's work was the equivalent of that book's heritage joust at Ashby, or like the pantomime on the Royal Mile, where Brummel's fat friend became an avatar of chivalry, his belly and puffy hands protruding from beneath his kilt. We're reminded of the plaster at Abbotsford, painted to resemble oak. As Sir Walter puts it himself in Marmion, oh, what a tangled web we weave when first we practice to deceive. That couplet is memorably pithy, but much of Scott's writing is mannered and leisurely, a peculiar handicap when handling deeds of daring do. Knights go to their encounters with velocity and dexterity, and when blows addressed to the helmet achieve their mark, it is fortunately scarce the work of a moment for the Templar to extricate himself from the stirrups and fallen steed. Now paid by the word, in the heart of Midlothian, Scott makes a long sentence out of a short one by calling cows those useful and patient animals on whose produce Davy Deans's living depended. There are stretched out footnotes on the probable facts of the incident of Blondel, minstrel to Richard Coeur de Leon. And all this is a great pity. Scott is an important poet, at least as gifted and possibly more inventive in the ballad form than Burns. And the energy of his writing in both prose and verse often comes, as with Burns, from the interplay of sleek Trois-Corby Scots with slow-motion Augustan editorial matter. When Burns, in Tam describes how market night boozing brings temporary respite from the rigours of Scottish Puritanism, it's a carpe diem couplet in Edinburgh English that gives everything proportion, or like the snowfall in the river 
a moment white, then gone forever. Two voiced effects like that are Scots linguistic stock in trade. A man of the borders who wrote about the disputed territories of history, the interplay between English and Scots in his work is often a kind of discourse between Scott the lawyer of Adam Smith's rational Edinburgh and Scott the antiquarian poet who gathered ballads and accosted licensed beggars on the windy southern uplands. It is not just a matter of Virginia Woolf's famous epigram about Scott's novels. The lifeless English becomes the living Scots. The Scots achieves its huge and proper life because the squinting English provides audience and context. For example, Madge Wildfire in the heart of Midlothian dies singing the finest poem Scott wrote, his masterpiece in the border ballads idiom. Proud Maisie is in the wood walking so early. Sweet Robin sits on the bush singing so rarely. The melancholy feminine rhymes of Maisie's morning churchyard, rinsed with the bright birdsong of her guileless youth, suggest her swan song is for its singer Madge, a kind of autobiography full of her own girlish dreams and disappointments at the hand of her seducer Staunton. Her poem is deservedly a familiar anthology piece, but in its original context in the heart of Midlothian, the impact is more striking still because the labouring English describing the scene at her deathbed cannot keep up with the living Scots of her ballad. The sexton has made the bride bed, a lane stretches over Whinny Muir to the land of the dead, which is clearly visible to everyone present. But Scott's Augustan narrative stalls rather than describe it. For what enlightenment gentleman hurries to catch up with death? Instead, there are sputters of understatement. Archibald, courtier to the high Augustan Duke of Argyle, is confused, if not affected, at what he sees, while the narrator himself sounds like a poor law inspector, filing an official report on the poor maniac and her singular scene. It was remarkable that there could always be traced in the songs something appropriate, or perhaps only obliquely or collaterally so, to her present situation. Thus Scott's professional voice, speaking as an Edinburgh writer to the signet, expresses its vague, awkward, civilised sympathy for the dying jailbird Madge clutching her fitful candle of poetry. Edwin Muir argued that all Scott's major writing depends on border reaver raids into and out of this disputed country of vision and visionary change. What I mean roughly, he writes, when I say that the old border tradition influenced Scott's conception of society, is that in his chief novels, he almost invariably chose an unruly period which resembled the generic strata of border society. For a while, the hero enjoys all the pleasures of lawlessness, since he exists in a sort of dateless border country outside the law. 
Then society, firmly but benevolently, gathers him into its arms, none the worse for his holiday, and quite certain henceforth to be a decent and orderly citizen. Scott is thus able, in a short story like The Two Drovers, to compassionate the ignorant clansman after Culloden, who gets into a dispute with a Yorkshire cattleman and must settle it with a dirk rather than with his fists. But Scott also compassionates the dead Englishman, Harry Wakefield, victim of knife crime and honour killing. Scott's insistence that both lads were tragic victims of two worlds, one dead, one powerless to be born, makes him the richest and strangest of historical novelists. Like a Marxist, he's convinced that any significant historical process is inexorable and irreversible. If, as William Empson said, the central function of imaginative literature is to make you realise that other people act on moral convictions different from your own, there are few writers more continually imaginative than Sir Walter Scott. He doesn't, like most historical novelists, endeavour to draw modern instances out of ancient conflicts nor is he guilty of tracing the anxieties of Regency Scotland by costuming them in Covenanting Jerkin or Jacobite Plaid. Scott offers old, unhappy, far-off things the consolation only of sympathy, never the sentimental hope of redress. The romantic borderland once changed is closed forever. Like Auden's Spain, he argues again and again that history to the defeated may say alas, but cannot help or pardon. The finest sequence in all Scott's novels is such a terminus. Red Gauntlet, 1824, magnificent sequel to Waverley, deals with the mythical return to Scotland, 20 years after Culloden, of a middle-aged young pretender. Saddled with a mistress in the Elector of Hanover's court, who provides perfect intelligence of his whereabouts and intentions to the authorities. The novel is addressed to all latter-day Jacobites, confident that no Stuart will ever sit again on the throne of Scotland, and who therefore keep their Jacobite dreams in cryogenic suspension, shaking them occasionally with a drinking song. The great scene gathers all these ageing rockers together and confronts them with their light-brained Charlie, no longer young or bonny, but indisputably come again. None, not even the grandly insolent Red Gauntlet with his satanic resilience, would be prepared to die for this flabby carpet night. It's a brutal surgery. Those among the conspirators, writes Scott, whom mere habit or a desire of preserving consistency had engaged in the affair, now saw with terror their retreat cut off, and others who at a distance had regarded the proposed enterprise as hopeful, trembled 
when the moment of actually embarking on it was thus unexpectedly and almost inevitably precipitated. Scott's greatness as a historical novelist is to mark the limits of rebellion's borderland. Further sorties there would be sentimental, futile, even self-damaging. General Campbell, representative of an influential Highland clan, but now also of the Hanoverian government, arrests no one, but allows the middle-aged company to depart unmolested, taking their broken dreams with them. As Edwin Muir puts it, Red Gauntlet is confronted by something against which all his courage becomes powerless, an act of grace which is at the same time an act of irresistible power. Now that is the bibliography and you need that, don't you? Scott may write too quickly or badly or carelessly to engage us in his medieval romances. But the major Waverley novels are another matter. A vision of political creativity, cynicism, poetry and tragedy that tell a coherent and continuous story of Scottish history from the restoration to the breaking of the clans and which rival in intensity and ingenuity Shakespeare's great second tetralogy. It is the greatest single travesty of our current canon that so few people who consider themselves well-read have actually read these books. One out of Waverley, The Heart of Midlothian, or Red Gauntlet should be the next major novel you read. If pressed for time, try the novella The Highland Widow in the Penguin Chronicles of the Canongate, or the brilliant short story The Two Drovers in the same volume. Thank you for listening.